Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, let's look at the gospel reading this morning, Mark 1, 1 through 8. It's in your bulletins. I, uh, so, so I was having a conversation with, uh, I, I had this conversation a lot too with people about the differences between uh, the kind of churches that I grew up in and the, the churches I go to now as a Lutheran. I didn't grow up Lutheran. A lot of you didn't grow up Lutheran either. And I don't know if there's some, I've not looked at the percentage of our church, how many people are sort of lifelong Lutherans and how many people uh, became Lutheran later on in life. And I don't know if there's any connection between that high ratio and the fact that I didn't grow up Lutheran. But there's lots, when we get together and talk about this, there are a lot of different things that, um, a lot of differences between the way I grew up and, and most of them minor, some of them big. One of the ones, that, one of the differences is the amount of attention paid to John the Baptist. I knew that John the Baptist existed, of course. Uh, I didn't, in the churches I grew up in, we just did not talk about him an awful lot, though. Um, but then when I became Lutheran, you know, every year Advent rolls around, and there's lots of sermons and readings about John the Baptist. And I, so I... I I've wondered why, like, what's the big deal about John the Baptist? Well, not to sound like Jerry Seinfeld, but like, what's he doing in the story? He's kind of like, in, in my mind, he's kind of like, and, and this is a, a, a niche nerd reference here, he's kind of a little bit like Tom Bombadil in The Lord of the Rings. Like, he shows up, he's got great power, and then like, he disappears, and like, what, what, what was that about? What's he doing? What's his point in the story? And it was clear he's super important. I, 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 did, I, I neglected to pay the appropriate amount of attention to him back before I was Lutheran. Um, those of you who, too, like who grew up in uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church, too, you probably spent a lot of time thinking about him, too, just because the lectionary readings in Advent uh, constantly go back to him. Um, it's interesting, is it, is it not, that the birth narratives of Jesus, the Christmas Day stories, only show up in two of the Gospels in Matthew and Luke. Mark and John don't have the story of his birth, but all four gospels begin the story of Jesus with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a player in each one of those, in, in each of the four gospels. So he's definitely important. What I wanted to do this morning, and for those of you who've grappled with this and you've moved on and you're like, this is old news, I apologize. Let an ex-Baptist kind of explore this morning what is John the Baptist doing in this story? And I'm going to do it out loud because it's what I was studying this week. That's the way sermons work. So three kind of like just basic narrative questions. 
uh, that I'd like to talk about. And this, is a, I, this feels a little bit weird. It's a less of a sermon and more of just me trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, but three, three, just three basic questions that I thought of when I read this story, uh, which is, why does John the Baptist act like that? All right, what's the deal with him? He goes go out living out in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey and dressing funny. Why does he act like that? Second, what is John the Baptist talking about? What's his, what's his point? Like, what's, what is his, what's he preaching about? What's he saying? And then finally, related to these two, why is he in the story at all? Why is he even in the story? Could we get by without John the Baptist in the story? Like, if you'd never heard of John the Baptist, could you still live a fulfilled life as a Christian, for those of you who are Christians? So those three things. So first of all, why does John the Baptist act like that? So verse 6 describes him. Verse 4, he's out in the wilderness. Verse 6, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Uh, this is definitely not the way normal Jews in the Second Temple period acted or dressed. It's definitely a little on the avant-garde side. It's, it's, it's a little eccentric, right? Now, it's interesting that he, this is a description, this description here is almost word for word the same description as Elijah that you get in um, uh, 2 Kings chapter 1, where Elijah is described as wearing camel's hair with a belt around his waist. So one thing we see right off the bat is that there's this parallel between the life that Elijah lived, kind of Elijah, well, more about it, in the life that John the Baptist lived. And they're both living the same sorts of life. They're very, very, both of them are very, very countercultural. Both of them refuse to be co-opted by the power systems that play within Israel and Judea, and in John the Baptist's case, within the Roman Empire. Both of them stand outside of the authority structures, refuse to be a part of them, and this is a little bit symbolic. I'm not even going to eat your food. I'm not going to wear your clothes. I'm not going to live in your towns. I'm going to stay out here. And this is what John the Baptist is doing. He is, a, he is in essence, an ideological lone ranger. Uh, nerd history lesson, just for a few minutes here, if you don't mind. We know of four, primarily four political parties. And when I say political parties, it's just because that's the best word I have for them. In, in ancient Judea, the, the politics and religion were all the same. Who God was and how God acts was highly, highly related to the relationship between Israel and the Roman Empire, who were their overlords at the time. So, so political parties isn't the right word, but they're basically four groups of people Jews living in Judea who had four different sort of thoughts about how should we be responding to the Roman, our Roman masters. All four groups agreed that this is not a good situation. Um, we know about two of them. For those of you who are uh, readers of the New Testament, you'll know about two of them, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Josephus, uh, the great uh, Jewish historian from the first century, lived about 40 years, 50 years after uh, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. Tells us about the other two. Pharisees were a group of people who's uh, very famous in, uh, in the Gospels. The Pharisees basically believed that the reason why the Romans were their overlords and why they were slaves under the Romans was because they had not followed, God's people had not followed God's law. They had been sent off into exile into Babylon. They had consistently refused to repent. God had sent prophets. And the only way for God to look down and see his people and say, now you're serious enough now I'm going to act to redeem you, was for them to be real serious about obeying God's law. And so they worked really hard on figuring out what's the best way for us to be obedient to God. 
And the Pharisees were about, um, I mean, well, you guys know this, a lot of you know this. The Pharisees were about ritual cleansings and um, kind of going above and beyond what the law asked. Uh, this is my example I always pull out because it's very, very dramatic and people, people remember it. But in the Mishnah, which is, is a collection of Pharisaic teachings from about, about 100 years after Jesus' time, but they reflect also uh, earlier life in, in the Pharisaic circles. It was forbidden, and when I say this, it sounds like I'm making fun, and I'm totally not because it makes sense to me within their worldview. It was forbidden to spit on the Sabbath. Some of you have heard me give this illustration before. Because if you spit, your spit could land on some sort of seed on the ground. It could germinate and grow, and then you would have been guilty of farming, which is work on the Sabbath. And everybody kind of chuckles, wow, that's just so legalistic. But if you're in their position where you're just desperate to get out from underneath the Romans, and you know God wants you to be faithful, and you're thinking, it's, is it evil to spit on the Sabbath? No, but we need to be super, super careful here. It makes sense. The Pharisees pretty much thought that Jesus was one of them. It's pretty clear from the gospel narratives that they, that they thought that. They, they considered him to be a teacher of the law like them. The Sadducees is another group that you know of from the New Testament. The Sadducees were the opposite of the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a conservative, aristocratic class, mainly located in Jerusalem. They were the family that oversaw the temple. The high priests all came from the Sadducee class. They were hated by most Jews because they were complicit with the Roman Empire. There was, a, there was an agreement between the Roman governor, who, you know, familiar with Pontius Pilate, he was a Roman governor for a couple, three years, in a, a famous episode in uh, religious history. And... There was an agreement between the Roman governor and the Sadducees that we'll work together. I, the Roman governor, says, I will let you run the temple. It can be your temple. And so I will approve, though. You will give me a list of candidates for high priests, and I will approve them, the Roman governor says. But you guys can be in charge of it. I'll let you be in charge of it. The, the, uh, um, um, the Sadducees were collaborationists. They were kind of like uh, the Vichy regime in France during World War II. Like, hey... We don't like the Germans, we get it. Nobody likes the Romans, but the best thing for us to do is just play ball. Keep your heads down, mind your own business. At least the, at least the Romans let us have our temple and let's just play nice. Um, these, are the two, these are the two we kind of know about from the New Testament. I'll give you two, two more though that Josephus tells us about. Uh, one is the Zealots, who uh, these were, uh, these are the, the, the guerrilla fighters. These are the people who are like, God will act to rescue us when we show the faith that it takes to rise up and start an army and fight against Rome. We just need to start the revolution now. Let's go. There's the, the, the word, it seems like Jesus' disciples, at least some of them, are thinking this might be what Jesus is up to. If the Pharisees are suspicious that Jesus might be suspicious, they think Jesus might be a Pharisee. Some of the disciples think that Jesus might be a zealot. And when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter at least thinks, now it's time to take the sword out. Let's go. This is it. This is, this is D-Day. Let's do this. And then, of course, Jesus says, put your sword away. I'm not here to whack people. I'm here to, to, to suffer and die. The other group is the Essenes. We don't know a ton about them from Scripture. Josephus tells us about them. The Essenes were separationists. The Essenes said, the Romans are evil. They're pagans. They're bad. The Sadducees are bad because they're collaborationists with the Romans. The Pharisees are bad because they still worship at the temple. And since the temple is run by the Romans and the Sadducees, the temple is filthy and not really a real temple at all. What we're going to do is we're going to ship 
ourselves out to the desert. We're going to live southeast of Jerusalem out by the Dead Sea. And we're going to start our own sort of semi-monastic community out here where we can be faithful to God's law and wait for God to act and blow up the rest of y'all who are not faithful to him. The Essenes are like that. Now, it is expected that you are going to fit into one of those categories. Josephus tells us this, and you, you get this sense from the, uh, the Gospels. How often, do you, how often do you, in the Gospels do you read the phrase, the Pharisees or, or the Sadducees came to Jesus and asked him a question to test him? What does that mean to test him? What it means is, we need to figure out whose side are you on. And so they'll pose a question about resurrection because that's one way to test. Are you with the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection of the dead at the last day? Are you with the Pharisees who say that there is a resurrection from the dead? So there's this constant, you guys are familiar with this in our culture too. There's this constant maneuvering like to figure out whose side are you on? Who do you belong to? What box can we stick you in to co-opt you? That's what's going on. John the Baptist refuses to play that game. John the Baptist refuses to be, to co- to be co-opted. In some ways, he's kind of like an Essene because he goes and he lives out in the desert and he says, judgment on everybody, brood of vipers. God's gonna blow all you up unless you repent. But another way, he's not like the Essenes because he does engage with people. He's not a separatist. He encourages people to come out and be baptized. Also, he's not like the Essenes because when he's asked by tax collectors, what, what should we do? The tax collectors are Roman collaborationists. He doesn't say, well, you're doomed. You're working with the pagan Romans. He just says, don't take, more than, uh, don't take more than what's just. And when the Roman soldiers themselves come and say, what should we do? He doesn't say, you are the worst of the worst. You are the slave owners. You're done. He just says, don't extort people and be content with your wages. So he doesn't really act like an Essene. In essence, he, he's a free agent. Not necessarily a free agent because he is advocating. He's advocating for Jesus. I mean, just to, uh, just, to, just to cut to the chase. Somebody's coming after me, says in verse 8, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is an agent of God who's on his way, who sits above and, beyond, above and in conflict with all of your little subgroups that you create to try and say, we are the true Jews and you guys are fake Jews. Jesus is going to come and he's gonna, he is going to be the almighty king. He's going to be the one true Jew. He's going to be the ruler of God's kingdom. In fact, to everybody who thought that they, you know, these groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Essenes, maybe not the Essenes, but the Zealots, they all come out to John at the River Jordan. And Matthew 3 says that he says to them at one point, don't be coming out here playing these games. Don't come out here saying to me, well, I'm the true Jew. Like, I'm the seed of Abraham. Look, if God wanted to raise up children to Abraham out of these stones, he could do it. You cannot find your identity in your little unique subgroup that says, this is who I am, I'm good to go, I'm the good guy, the rest of them out there are the bad guys. John the Baptist sits in conflict with that because John the Baptist represents the only good guy, Jesus. As I said before, it's not us versus them, whether in John's day or in our day, it's all of us versus God and his saving redemptive power which overcomes that. So, what should we do about this? This doesn't mean, is there any way to kind of apply the way John the Baptist lives his life? I, I think so, probably. It doesn't mean that you need to go live out in the desert or dress funny or to do things that mark yourself as like uniquely not in the system like John the Baptist does. After all, Jesus doesn't do that. 
Paul doesn't do that. Paul moves around in society. Jesus makes a comment at one point, I believe it's in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, John the Baptist came, weirdo. They said he has a demon, like this crazy guy. The Son of Man came, I come, and I like go to parties and hang out with people, and they call me a, a drunkard. You just can't make anybody happy, he says. You can't make anybody happy. So the point isn't like how do you dress or what, you know, what, where do you live or what's your behavior. But the point is, is, is there a way that those of you who are Christians can live a life above the constant tensions, the push and pull of ideological culture wars that are constantly embattling us? And I think that the answer from John the Baptist is, you just, it's, not that you, it's not that you can't, it's just that it's that you can't, it's that it's necessary. That if you are a Jesus person, you cannot allow yourself to be co-opted by these things. I'll give you one quick example, and there's a million different ways to unpack this. But you are going to be tested, like Jesus and John the Baptist. You are going to be tested. There is going to be a question, and some of you know this already, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, I'll, I'll make it as general as I can so that you can unpack your own individual application on the car ride home today. The question that you are faced with constantly in our culture is, are you for permissiveness or are you for righteousness? Are you for permissiveness? Or is another way, you could say, I'll say it this way, sometimes you'll hear, are you for love or are you for hate? Are you for permissiveness or are you for rejection? And there's a million different ways in the cultural conversations that this applies. Christians cannot allow themselves to say, well, I fall into this category. I'm in the rejection category. I think it's all sinful and evil. Full stop. You can say that, but you can't say full stop. Christians also can't afford to put themselves in the permissiveness category. I think people should just do whatever they want and live however they want, full stop. Instead, what Christians must do is to find their identity in Jesus, in the one who says, this is very harsh what I'm about to say, in the one who says that nothing is permissible, that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, but I will reject none of you. I fully, completely, without reservation, accept all of you for the sake of my shed blood. To to grapple with the reality that I mean, this is I'm just a fancy way of talking about law and gospel, I guess, at this point. But to grapple with the reality that we're all broken, that there isn't a good group of people who are righteous and a bad group of people over here who are unrighteous, but that all of us are sinful, but that all of us are loved by God for the sake of Jesus Christ and through faith in him can be completely accepted by him forever and ever. See, see how that, 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 there's not an ideological category. So, so uh, the, the cultural right says justice is important. And the cultural left says, no, 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 mercy is important. And what Christians always have to do is say, no, right, like we just read the psalm, righteousness and mercy kiss at the cross of Jesus Christ. Neither one of them trumps the other. They are both realities. And if we can live identifying ourselves in our baptism as connected to Jesus Christ, we can, without being a crazy man like John the Baptist, can sit above these cultural things and offer the world an alternative to the incredibly messy and frustrating and depressing mess that they find themselves in, where people are shouting at each other on social media over who's right, or you think you're right, I think I'm right, and all we can do is yell at each other. Christ offers an alternative to that, which is none of you are right, but because if you, if you repent and confess that none of you are right, all of you will be right. So he says at the end of John chapter 9, if, if, you, if you say that you're blind, you will see. But as long as you say you're not blind, you'll be blind. And if we, can, if we can live out that message to the culture, um, 
it will reflect who Jesus is. Okay, now listen, that, that's just the first point. And I know that my usual method is to make short first points, to lull you into a sense that the sermon is moving along. And then like, <laughs> just sit on the final points. Today, that's the longest point, okay? So I, I, I don't know if I worry too much about you people and your stamina for listening to these long sermons, but uh, that's the longest point. Okay, second, what's the, that's what John the Baptist is, that's why he's acting so crazy, is because he's living a countercultural life for the sake of Jesus. He's rising above all the, the low-level ideological differences. Secondly, what is John the Baptist talking about? Well, there's two things, that, the, the kind of big things here that he talks about. First of all, verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's the first thing he's preaching. Now, what is baptism? For, for those of you who are church people, Christians, you're like, oh, I know about this. Yeah, baptizing, he's baptizing. But if you think about, like, where does baptism show up before this in the story? Not in, in the Bible. R really not in any sort of specific way. So what are the people, are they going out there and John is saying, I'm going to baptize you for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. And people are like, okay, I'll get in that water. Or do they know what's going on? Now, I think, I'm convinced that they know what's going on. There's no sort of explanation here. So what is baptism for, for, for John? What are the people who are going out to him in, 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 in the Jordanian desert? What are they thinking when the baptism is happening? All right, another nerd history lesson. God's people were delivered from slavery in Egypt by crossing the divided Red Sea. They go from being a minority oppressed ethnic group, slaves in Egypt, to being a liberated people in Sinai. You wouldn't really call them a nation because they're just kind of moving around. They don't really have a home. They're, and I know, they're more of a nation than they were when they were this ethnic, oppressed ethnic group. Forty years later, they crossed the Jordan Sea. This is in the book of um, um, Joshua. They the Jordan Sea. They crossed the Jordan River on dry ground to enter into the promised land, and then they become a real nation. These formative events of like moving from slavery to freedom, to moving from not a people to God's people through water is a powerful symbol that the people of Israel in the Old Testament picked up on and really kind of sat down in. I'll give you one example where this is the case. This notion that we are the people who have come through the water and have been created a new people. 2 Kings 5, Naaman the Syrian, cured of his leprosy. The part of his being cured of leprosy was being told, you need to go to the Jordan and you need to dip yourself in there seven times. He goes and he dips himself in the Jordan River seven times. He's cleansed of his leprosy, but not just cleansed of his leprosy, he also becomes a Jew. He also says to Elijah, I'm going to worship the one true God. From now on, that's who I am. I'm a worshiper of Yahweh. There's this sense that by Jesus' day, that if a Gentile, like Naaman, wants to become a, a real Jew, they're gonna, have to do, they're gonna have to have their own personal Red Sea crossing the Jordan River experience. That's what they thought, right? Like Na Naaman had to do that. And so there are, we know this from archeology span and also written records, there are ritual baptisms that Gentiles must undergo in, during Jesus' day if they wanna become a Jew, along with circumcision and other things, uh, you know, giving up uh, non-kosher food and whatnot. What is John, okay, all that in mind, what is John the Baptist doing when he's telling all these Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, all of them, you have to come out and you have to be baptized if you want 
the forgiveness of sins. What's he saying? He's saying, kind of piggybacking on the first point. Y'all think that you're the one true Jews, but all of you are basically Gentiles. There's no, in other words, there's no good guys. And if you want the coming kingdom, if you want God to return home, then all of us are going to have to repent. All of us are going to have to, once again, become true Jews. You can't rely on your, your uh, 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 Red Sea experience anymore. It's time to be rebaptized. So what he's doing is he's saying, give up your identities. Give up your fake, give up your fake identities to take on board this new identity that I'm offering you. The coming one who's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. And this is the second thing that he preaches. First of all, baptism, forsaking your old identity, forsaking your old way of being Israel and trusting God for his way of being Israel. And then secondly, there's coming somebody after me, he says in verse eight, who is bigger and more powerful and mightier than me. I'm baptizing you with water, but he's gonna give you the Holy Spirit. Now, what does this mean? The pouring out of the Holy Spirit. First of all, God is... When the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament, you look at Isaiah 63 or look at Joel 2. We don't have time to look at those. But it talks about the Holy Spirit being with God's people. It's going to happen after this powerful experience where God comes to live with his people. All right. So, in uh, the first few verses of our reading in Mark 1, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So basically, we read this from Isaiah 40, right? Big construction project happening. We're going to build this highway. It's not literal, but we're going to build this highway nice and level and straight because God is coming back home to live with us. God is coming back home to live with us. This is what they've been longing for for, for hundreds of years now. And John the Baptist is saying, it's about to happen. I'm the one, I'm the construction engineer. I'm the one who's saying, come out, it's time to get the project going. God is moving back home. How is he moving back home? He's moving back home in the person of this one who's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Because in Joel 2, Isaiah 63, when God moved back home, there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. Men, women, poor people, rich people, the young and the old, Joel 2 says, all of them will get the Holy Spirit. This one who's coming and is bringing God back home to us is going to bring the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in, in, in verse 8. So this great exodus. And so how, he's talking about Jesus. You, you know that now, the, the, those of you who've done Advent before. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is bringing the presence of God back home. God is coming home to live with his people, not as a pillar of fire and cloud inside the temple like he did in Exodus 40 in, in, in 1 Kings 19. But he's coming here in a construction worker. God's actually going to live here on earth in a normal dude who's got a body mass index and a hair color and hobbies and a particular accent and a job that he does. This person is going to be the God who pours out the Holy Spirit on all flesh. The highway is bringing us Jesus of Nazareth. God is coming home to us, John the Baptist says. In other words, what John's message is all about is God is acting. It's the final climactic story in Israel's history. He's about to come back home, but he's doing it in a way that none of us anticipated. He's doing it in human form. He's coming back home to us as Jesus. So for John the Baptist, it's all about Jesus. All right, third last point that will be done. This is a short one too. This is based upon those things. Why does the story of the Gospels, or the story of the Bible even, why does it need John the Baptist? 
What, what is John the Baptist necessary? And I, I've thought about this, and maybe, maybe, maybe this is a bad way to put it. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I don't think it does. I don't think that the story of John the Baptist actually is a game changer. You could take it out. I'm not advocating you do that because it's in God's word. But you could take it out and still get Jesus. You could take it out and still get the story of Israel. You could take it out and still get the great Exodus themes that John the Baptist pulls on when he's baptizing people. So then why is he in there? And this is what I think. Jesus doesn't need John the Baptist. But Jesus chooses to include John the Baptist in his story because it gives him delight to include other human beings in the coming of the kingdom. So, does Jesus need me? Like the, the, the romantics, those of you who are Christians and are romantics at heart, you're like, yes, Aaron, Jesus really needs you. Jesus doesn't need me in that sense. Like he's just, but he's decided that he's going to need me. Does this make sense? Like, when you get married or you fall in love or whatever, do you need that other person? Oh, again, those of you who are romantics, you know, you watch the Sandra Bullock movie last night. You're like, oh, yeah, I really need that other person. Yeah, I, I, they're, they're my everything. I wouldn't be happy without them. Well, you, you know that's not true. Or if you don't know it's not true, you will in several months when things get boring or you start fighting. Um, you, you don't need the other person. But when you get married to somebody, you decide, I am going to need you. You don't essentially need them, but you make the decision to need them. That's what love is. That's what love is. For those of you who have kids, did you need kids? Maybe in some sort of weird biological clock sense, but it doesn't take you too long to have a kid before you're like, I don't need this. Right? <laughs> you don't need kids, but when these babies get made, you're like, I need this kid. It's like this relationship decision. And I think that's what's going on with John the Baptist. God, and you see this, not just John the Baptist, but all throughout Scripture. Could Jesus, like, have this great gospel laser gun shooting out his fingers where he's like, you're a Christian, and I'm going to rescue you? I, I, what, yeah, I guess, but some, for some reason, he's decided to allow us to be a part of this story, too. He's decided to let us be conduits of his gospel message. He's decided to let us be beacons of his grace. He's decided to let us be signposts of his great desire to bring forgiveness and healing to the whole creation. And it gives him great delight to have John the Baptist in the story. It's his cousin. Does he need him? No, but he's decided, I'm going to need him. I'm going to put him in here, and I'm going to eventually say in a conversation later on, Gospel of John, nobody's ever been greater than this guy. God needs you. Not because there's something essential about you that God's nature is not completed until you existed, but because he just loves you so much. He's decided, I am making this person. I'm going to watch this person go to work and play golf and make dinner and drink a glass of wine, and I'm going to get deep pleasure in them. I'm going to let this person know me and represent me and live lives of righteousness and love and mercy and justice because it is so enjoyable for me to be in a relationship with this person. That's who you are. In Jesus Christ, he gets so much pleasure out of you. He's decided like John the Baptist that he needs you. So this Advent season, let's think about that. I said this last week, I'll say it again. The, how do you know what you're worth? 
You know what you're worth based upon the price that somebody's willing to pay for you. In this Advent season, let's think about this. God is willing to become a human being, to become a construction worker, to live life with us so that he could die the death that we should have died and rise from that. That's the greatest price anybody could ever pay for you is their own blood. And when it's the blood of the eternal God, that's how much he loves you guys. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the witness of John the Baptist. Thank you for choosing him. Thank you for allowing him to bear your message in his day. Thank you for calling us to live lives that reflect who you are, to be true image bearers of you in our day. And thank you for that love that would motivate you to do that for us, even when we didn't deserve it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.